Well, in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. One of the Christmas movies that I've watched is uh, Miracle on 34th Street. The whole theme as you come to the end of that show is, I believe. And you know, i got to admit that at times in this Christmas season, there are times when I get a little bit frustrated with that theme because a lot of times believing in Jesus is made to look like believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or these different mythological characters. But it's so completely different. When I look at Miracle on 34th Street, when you get to the court case at the end, what is he trying to do? He's trying to convince a judge that in spite of all the evidence, rule in this guy's favor. In spite of everything that's stacked up against believing in it, choose to believe. And you have people wearing buttons that say, I believe, and a whole mob outside the courtroom window that is honking horns and saying that they believe. And all the while, it's in spite of the evidence. And then finally, he's given one thing. If you watch the older version, the court is allowed to say, you know what, he may or may not be, but it's fine with us if you believe that he is because the U.S. postal system delivered some letters to him. And so that's a government agency acknowledging that this might very well be the guy. Or if you look at the newer version. He takes a dollar out and he says, in God we trust. And he says, we don't have to offer proof for God. The government of the United States can choose to believe. With Miracle on 34th Street, they're trying to believe in spite of all the evidence. In fact, the the final line that the lawyer gives in his argument in court is this. He says, which is worse, a lie that brings a smile or a truth that sheds a tear? The fact of the matter is, it doesn't really matter whether something brings a smile or a tear. The truth just is. Reality just is. You can't manufacture a reality just because it's an idea that makes you smile. But you know what? That's exactly what I love about Christmas. Christmas is the reality. Christmas is the truth. The Gospel of John, he's doing the same thing. He's coming before us. He's not coming before a court or a jury, although he records that because Jesus would stand before Pilate. He would stand before Herod. He would stand before the Sanhedrin and the council. But John is doing exactly that with us, but we're the court, we're that judge, we're the jury, and John is coming before us and he's saying, look, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. We need to believe. But he's not saying believe because it'll draw a smile. 
He's not saying believe because it'll make a warm, fuzzy feeling. He's not saying believe in spite of all the evidence that is mounted up against it. He's saying believe because of all the evidence. You know, as we look at the Gospel of John, he declares his purpose in writing. Remember last week when we looked at Luke? And at the very beginning, Luke starts off by stating his purpose. This is exactly what I'm doing with this, with this Gospel that I'm writing. Well, John does the same thing, but he doesn't do it at the beginning. He does it closer to the end. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs. That word sign is a key word used all through the Gospel of John. He showed us sign after sign after sign. What does a sign do? Signs inform us. They give us information. They tell us something. They tell us about a windy road that's coming up ahead or a deer that might jump out in front of you or a stop sign is up ahead, a speed limit is up ahead. They inform us. All through the Gospel of John, John keeps pointing to things about Jesus and saying, look, that's a sign. That's a sign. This sign he did. The first sign he did at a wedding feast in Cana. That was the beginning of his signs. Well, what are they informing us? They're informing us of who he is. That he is the Son of God. And then John, when he gets toward the end of his gospel, he tells us that, look, this is exactly why I've showed you all these signs, because they're all evidence of who Jesus is, and you need to believe so that you can have life. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Dealing with Christ, not only his birth, but also his whole life, his death, his resurrection, his teachings, his uh, miracles that he did, all of it, he says, goes to point to who he was and that you need to believe in him. Well, you know, we have something much more important on the docket here today than whether or not you want to teach your children about Santa Claus or believe in Santa Claus. We have whether or not you're going to believe on the Son of God. And that's what, as we celebrated here this morning, we're loudly proclaiming, we believe. We believe. We're not believing in spite of all the evidence. We're believing because of all the evidence. Because Jesus Christ has made himself so known and so clear. And that's exactly what the Gospel of John is always is all about. As we look at it here this morning, John says, My purpose is writing to you so that you can believe. And so that in believing you'll have life. The word believe is used 84 times through the Gospel of John. It's a prominent theme. It's the target that he's aiming at. You know, yesterday we gave some of our grandkids bows and arrows and little targets, and they were getting pretty good by the end of the day. Had to kind of shy them away from shooting each other and get them onto the targets. But, but I was surprised at how many times they'd hit right on the bullseye of that little target hanging in the living room and stuff. And, and um, you know what? That believing is the bullseye that the Gospel of John is, is shooting at. We see it in, in chapter 3. In chapter 3 of the book of John, he's ta- Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a, a very religious man. And he is, comes to Jesus at night, seeing Jesus probably just, just as a fellow rabbi. But he knows there's something different about him. Because nobody can do the things he's doing unless he's from God. And, and Nicodemus points that out. And you know what Jesus tells him? That he needs to believe. In fact, he uses the word repeatedly as he's talking to him. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now notice the connection. Belief. Eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just like John's theme verse. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. There it is again. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. You see, there's a lot on the line. Belief determines whether we're condemned or not condemned. Belief determines whether we have life or we don't have life. Belief determines whether we spend an eternity under the blessings of God in heaven or an eternity in the hell under His curse. Belief is everything. And because it is so important, it needs to be founded on solid ground. Well, in the Gospel of John, we find just that. That as we study this subject this morning of we believe and we make this proclamation, we see just a couple simple yet profound statements dealing with who Christ is. In fact, these are the statements that if you look at early church history, these are the first issues of doctrine that they really wrestled with. Who is Christ? He's God. He's man. How does that work together? It kind of reminds me of going to that play last week. You know, into the Chronicles of Narnia and they have the one. I always forget the name of that thing. What's the thing that's like half horse and half man? Centaur. Thank you. The costume was awesome that they put together on that. And that's kind of what people did with Jesus. Well, what is he? He's God. He's man. Is he half God, half man? Is he? And they really put together some church councils and spent some time wrestling with this issue. And 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 who is he? And how does all that work? And it's called a hypostatic union. How does the manhood and the deity of Christ all work together? And well, he's not half God and half man. He is God and he is man. And this is exactly the issue within John. Although John's main focus is the fact that he's God. He does obviously point out that He became flesh, He dwelt among us, that He is man as well, but He is pointing to the deity of Christ, and so we're going to get a little more information from Him as we look at the deity or the Godhood of Christ as well. Well, as we look at what we believe this morning, we believe that He is God. There are several things that point to Him being God within the passage, and the first one is His self-existence, that He exists in and of Himself. We see it in the very beginning of the passage. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice in those two verses, he used the word was like four times. It's put there to ring a bell. Remember, the very beginning of the Bible starts off the same way. In the beginning. And this one says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, as we go down through the passage, is very clearly talking about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. He was already there. Just like in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It doesn't start out with the beginning of God. It's the beginning of everything that He created because God has no beginning. In the beginning, God. God is already there. It kind of reminds us also of the statement that God made to Moses when Moses is up on the hillside and he sees this bush burning, and he, but it's not being consumed. And he goes over to see this phenomenon and God speaks to him and tells him what he wants him to do. And Moses says, well, when I go down and tell those people what you want me to tell them, who do I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. I am. He's the, the self-existent one. He's, he's the one that doesn't come from anything or anyone. He's the... He's the one and it exists in and of Himself and does so throughout all eternity. Now I know that that's a big thing to get your mind around. In fact, you're not going to succeed in it. But don't worry. You believe a lot of things that are hard to believe. Impossible to understand. You probably believe space goes on forever, but you can't get your mind around that either. 
How many, how many times have you thought, what's the biggest number? Well, there isn't one, because as soon as you say that number, you just say that and one, and it just keeps going. There's, there's, uh, there's eternal things built right into our creation. Time may be one of them. We argue about that. Does time have a beginning? Is it a created entity, or is it just the measuring of the forward flow of events? I'm not really sure. It's above my pay grade. But the point is, you know, you don't understand nearly as many things as you believe. <laughs> and, I mean, metaphysics doesn't make it untrue just because you can't explain it. But we don't seem to wrestle with that. There's a whole host of things in this world that I can't explain and don't understand, but I'm sure they're absolutely true. It's the same with our understanding about God. He has no beginning and will have no end. Trying to get your mind around that will drive you crazy. But if you deny it, you lose a lot more than just your mind. You lose your soul. And so we see Jesus here is described as in the beginning was. He was with God. He was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John the Baptist even alludes to that a little bit farther down. Remember, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. He was older than Jesus. And John the Baptist says about Jesus, his younger cousin, he says, this is the one that I told you about that is preferred above me. And the reason that he is preferred above me is because he was before me. Now, how could he be before John the Baptist if John the Baptist is the older cousin to Jesus? Well, because Jesus, this isn't his beginning. Jesus in the beginning was already there and he was with God and he was God. He confirms that again in verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the father's side, he has made him known. You see what that says? He says, nobody's ever seen God. But then he goes on to say the only God who has to be referring to Jesus because he said because he's the one that's sitting at the father's side. He has made him known. Who is Christ? He is God. How do we know that he's God? Because he's the self-existent one. In the beginning, he already was. Now, not only that, but we see that he was busy at that time as well. It says he is the creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Bible echoes this all over it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Colossians 1, 16 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And so He is the Creator of all things. And, and, and you know, that's a term that's synonymous with God. When you refer to the Creator, you're assumed to be talking about God. There's nobody else you really can be talking about. So we believe. Not only do we believe because of His self-existent, or that He's self-existent, that He's the Creator, we also believe that, as it says in the passage here, that He's the source of life and light. Jesus is going to say, "I I am the bread of life. Looking back to the time when God gave manna, bread to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sustain their life through that. He's going to say, I am the light of the world during a feast day of tabernacles when the Jewish people would have this huge candle lighting ceremony in the temple. And Jesus would stand up and say, I am the light of the world. Just showing so many things from Israel's history and so many miraculous things that He was doing at the moment. God fed the multitudes of Israel out in the wilderness with bread. Jesus took a little boy's bread and fed 5,000 people with it. And then he pointed to himself and said, I am the bread of life. And Jesus, through the Gospel of John, is going to show that all these Old Testament things were signs about me. All these miracles that I'm doing right now are signs about me proving who I am. 
You absolutely need to believe this because it is absolutely true. Well, as we look at that, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And that's another thing we see through the Gospel of John is people. Jesus does something amazing, and then you always get to see the reaction of the people in the Gospel of John. Some people are going to believe. Some people aren't going to believe. In the end, when he finally raises somebody from the dead, the religious leaders say, we can't take this anymore. We've got to kill them both to silence this whole thing, make an end of it at all. And of course, doing that doesn't make an end of it because he rises from the dead. But all these things working together to point to who Christ is. Well, in chapter 3, as we already read part of it, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus would have been a very moral person. The Jewish people took their took the laws that God gave to them through Moses and then they added their tradition to it and they made it steeper. They said, you know, God said don't work on the Sabbath day. The Jews told you what it meant to work on the Sabbath day. They told you don't spit on the ground because you might rub it in with your foot and that might be work. You can't do that. They had a morality that was top shelf. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, is talking to a man also that was somebody that was very religious. In fact, he was a religious leader. He was, Jesus referred to him, as we mentioned earlier, the Bible teacher in Israel. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from, come from God because nobody could do the things you're doing. See, he's seeing the signs. Nobody could do the things you're doing unless God's with him. And you know what Jesus told Nicodemus? Unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born again, he tells him again, you will not even see the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. A man with impeccable morality stand before the pearly gates, rejected. A man with lots of stars on his chart for being at church and going through the rituals and, and doing all the religious things. In fact, a religious leader and somebody that the whole community looked up to, even above other religious leaders, and uh, hits to the pearly gates and rejected. A man with Bible knowledge, knowledge of the Old Testament, which was the only Bible they had at the time, gets before the pearly gates and rejected. All because of what? Because exactly what Jesus told them in another passage in the, in the Gospel of John. He says, you study the Scriptures because you think that through them you have eternal life, but they point to Me and you won't come to Me that you might have life. You see, life is in Christ Life is not in being religious. Life is not in being moral and in, in having strong family values, though we need to have them. And life is not about all our religious ceremony, though, though it serves a purpose, and we ought to be participating in those things. Life is in Christ. Our religion should draw us to Christ. Our morality should show us where we fall short and bring us to Christ. Life is in Him. And that's what John is saying. Look, we need to believe because in believing, we have life. Because Christ is that life. And then he uses another word, too, that he uses repeatedly through the book of John. And that is light. He says that life was the light of men. Matthew pointed to it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. And he's talking about Jesus coming out of Galilee. Remember, Matthew focuses a lot on prophecy. And the prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. And he quotes another one here. He says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. John focuses on that light even more through his gospel. In John chapter 12, verse 36, says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light, Jesus said. 
Ten verses later, Jesus said, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We use light so much in our celebration of Christmas time, and it's absolutely fitting because Jesus is that light of the world. Jesus said while he was in the world that the light of God was in the world. So walk in the light while you have the light. He said believe in the light so that you become sons of the light. He would stand up in that festival and say, I am the light of the world. He would turn to his disciples and by extension us and say, now you are the light of the world. Don't put yourself under a bushel. Get out there and light up this place. And so light is a great thing. But then also we see that he is victorious. And this is in connection with the light. But I love the statement that he makes. And he says, and the darkness has not overcome it. Sometimes we start feeling like it is, doesn't it? Sometimes we look around our world and even experiences within our own families and stuff sometimes. And we see darkness and and we feel like we're losing the battle. We're not. The disciples thought it was looking like a pretty dark time when Jesus went to the cross. But it was the very thing that would lead to the brightest light. And then he rose again from the dead, and here comes the light. And then they were victorious. Their light still shines. And that's why we're here today, because their light is carried all the way down to us. It's kind of like in our Christmas candle lighting ceremony, when we start off with one candle lit, and then we light the candles that the kids want to help with. And so then they go down, and they light the first one of each row, and the light just kind of spreads. And that's a picture of exactly what has happened for us. Jesus Christ was that light, and he lit his apostles. And the apostles lit others. And churches were started and planted and people were won to Christ. And, and even though governments and the peoples and powers and authority would try to extinguish that light by even putting them to death, they could not stamp out that light. You cannot overcome that light. Rome tried to stamp out the light of Christianity and Christianity, the light overcame Rome. The darkness has not overcome it. Well, not only is Jesus God, but Jesus also is man. It says he became flesh. Now notice the difference in the language. Because when it's talking about him being God, it says in the beginning was the word. But now when it talks about him becoming man, it says he became flesh. So he already was God, but he became a man. And so we see that Jesus is not only God, but he's also man. And Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so what did God do? He brought his Son into the world, who has been, who was with him in eternity past, as the Son of God. And at the right time, he sent his Son into the world. And that's where we see the incarnation, where God becomes a man. In verse 9 it says the true light which gives light to everyone it says was coming into the world. It talks about him that he came to his own. Uh, it talks about the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And so it uses these statements about him that he became a man, that he dwelt among us, that he came unto his own. And so he existed in the past as God but he became a man at that certain point. Now I love the word that he uses there when it says he dwelt among us. The word that he uses there is literally the word tabernacle, that he tabernacled among us. Tabernacle just means a tent. When God first delivered Israel out of Egypt and headed into the promised land, they'd wander around and live in tents for 40 years. During that time, God had to make him a tent. And wherever they went, they set up the tabernacle, which is God's tent. And then they set up their tabernacles, their tents, 
all around it by tribe. So the tabernacle of God, the tent of God, was always in the center of the camp and all the camp laid out centered around God. That's where God's glory shone. God's glory shone in a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And when God's glory rose up from the tabernacle and started to move to another place, then they hurried up and picked up his tent and took it with them and they followed him. And wherever his glory stopped, they set up his tent for him so he could be at his home. And they all set up their tents around him. And that's how they lived for 40 years. And then they get there and they set up the tabernacle in the promised land and they worship in that for a while. And then eventually David says, this is crazy. God's still living in a temporary dwelling, a tent, and we're living in homes. We should make it permanent, make it out of stone. The tabernacle becomes a temple and his son Solomon would do that. And God would have his home in the midst of Israel dwelling among them. This is prominent in the Bible. If we look all the way back to the creation, what do we find? We find God making the Garden of Eden, and in the midst of that garden, God dwells among them. The dwelling of God is with man. Adam and Eve would walk in the, in the cool of the evening. They would walk with God in the garden. They'd fellowship with God in the garden. They had an unbroken relationship with God. And then they failed to keep it that way. They fell to the temptation. They thought God was holding back on them. They took the fruit from the tree they weren't supposed to, fell to the lie of the serpent, and they were exiled out of the Garden of Eden. And then God chooses His chosen people, builds them up into a nation. And when He brings them out of that nation, He makes His dwelling among them. There's my tent, right in with your tents. We're having, let's just look with my grandkids. I was talking to Titus yesterday, and I told, with Titus, I counted, look, we're going to be Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday, four sleepovers. And he's like, oh, four sleepovers at Grandpa's. That's what God did with Israel. Sleepovers with God all the time. God is dwelling among them. Some of that's represented in the ark, and later on they're going to have the ark stolen from them. And the one guy gets named Ichabod. Why? Because the glory of Israel was departing. The presence of God was departing. Ezekiel. Israel had a checkered past. More black than white, unfortunately. And they failed to maintain as the people of God. They failed to live faithfully to God. And you know what happened? They got carried off into exile and the temple was destroyed. They were unfaithful to God. And just as Adam and Eve were exiled out of the Garden of Eden, the children of Israel are exiled out of their land over into Babylon. But 70 years later, they're allowed to start coming back. And they start to rebuild the temple. In the end of getting the temple built, the leaders step back and they look at it and they cry. It's nothing compared to what it was, they say. And then this woman gives birth to this young child. And John looks at that and says, He came and He tabernacled among us. The glory of God, just as it says in the latter part of this passage, the glory of God came and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. He was tabernacling among us. He, he moved his tent in with us. He came into our lives. But then what, where does it leave us now? Where's the dwelling of God now? You know where it is? It's in you. The Bible continues to use that idea of the tabernacle or temple of God and refers to us in different passages in different ways. Some of the passages refer to it as corporate. That we, as the church, as the body of Christ together, that we are the temple of God. And the Apostle says, woe to the person that would tear down that temple. Well, we collectively, as the body of Christ, are that temple of God. This is where He dwells. He dwells among us as we gather together and perform the, the, the duties of a church. And as we relate to one another, Jesus said, wherever two or more of you are gathered together, I'm there. I'm with you. I'm in the midst. But then he also uses of us individually. He would tell the Corinthians, don't you know that your body 
is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Makes sense. Because when we believed in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in. He indwells us. And so if He's indwelling us, that means we are the temple. We are that tabernacle individually. So we're the temple corporately as the body of Christ. We're the temple individually. And that's why He says, don't use your body for sinful things. You're desecrating the temple every time you do something sinful. Because you are the house of the Holy Spirit. You're the dwelling place of God. God's dwelling is still among us collectively as a church, individually, as believers. As we look at what we believe, we're believing in something great. This isn't just a warm, holiday, fuzzy feeling. It's not just a fun family folklore. This is the reality. John gave sign after sign after sign saying, look at all the things that Jesus did. He is God. Look at all the things that He links to in the Old Testament that He is the fulfillment of. He is God. All these signs point to Him. This one who is God and who is man. This one that we all testify together and say we believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and our Savior.